You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. There is no fault in loving, no call for shame. Everyone's heart You're listening to Queer Characters on Broadway, a new miniseries from The Ensemblist. I'm your host, Jackson Klein. I fell in love with musical theater when I was three years old, thanks to my now-worn-out VHS copy of Cats. As I discovered other musicals throughout my youth, I was able to see parts of myself in many musical theater characters. However, there weren't many in which I saw my queerness represented. Nor were there many instances in which I saw those queer roles portrayed by queer artists. Of course, queer representation has come a long way over the past two decades, but there's still so far we can go. Recently, I've been asking myself several questions about queer representation in musical theater. How has the portrayal and inclusion of queer characters evolved over the years? Are more queer artists getting opportunities to tell these stories, both on stage and behind the scenes? And does giving queer identifying individuals opportunities to create queer roles create a richer theatrical experience for the audience? Over the course of this miniseries, we'll dive into these questions and hear from some of the talented artists who have put their stamps on queer characters on Broadway. Today, we're going to take a journey through time, looking at the first question and examining the evolution of queer stories told in Broadway musicals. Now, keep in mind, this is just an overview. As much as I'd love to take a deep dive into every queer character to ever be in a Broadway musical, that episode would be far too long. So let's jump into our time machines and head back to 1969. Unqualified, unmatchable, incomparable, incredible, fantastic, and fabulous. Fiasco! Oh, what a thrilling, fulfilling decline. While it's hard to nail down the first queer character to ever appear in a musical, the first major openly gay character in a Broadway musical was Sebastian Bay, a nemesis of Coco Chanel in 1969's Coco. This production premiered just six months after the Stonewall Riots, which were a major tipping point in the gay rights movement. While René Aubergenois' performance was celebrated with the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor, the role has since been criticized as a negative caricature of a gay man. Now, there were some queer members on the creative team, but both the actor and writers creating the roles identified as straight. Now, just three months later, applause opened at the Palace Theater on Broadway. Like Coco, applause also featured a gay supporting character, Dwayne Fox. This time, however, he was portrayed in a much more positive light. In the show, Dwayne Fox is Margot Channing's hairdresser, and he has a significant moment early on in the first act when he takes Margot and Eve Harrington to a gay bar in the Greenwich Village during the song But Alive. An ensemble of gay men enjoy a lively evening with the trio during this number, which was one of the first times ensemblists embodied openly queer characters on Broadway. Additionally, Leroy Reams, who played Dwayne, was the first openly gay actor to originate a gay principal role in a Broadway musical. Just five years later, a chorus line not only broke new grounds in form, but also for queer characters. While he's not the only gay character in the show, I'm going to focus on Paul, a dancer auditioning for Zack's musical. In a deeply moving monologue late in the show, he tells his story of growing up gay and Puerto Rican, the shame and bullying associated with it, and then getting hired to dance in a drag review. Not only did a chorus line dive deeper into the inner lives of its gay characters than any Broadway musical had before, Paul was also the first queer character of color in a Broadway musical. 
Sammy Williams won a Tony Award for this role, which was inspired by the real-life story of co-librettist Nicholas Dante. In the 1980s, mainstream queer representation remained slow, although 1983 was a major year for gay men on stage. Although it closed on opening night, Dance a Little Closer featured the first same-sex romantic relationship between supporting characters in a Broadway musical. Just three months later, La Cage of Fall opened and quickly became a hit, running for four years. La Cage, a story about a young man's gay parents meeting his fiancée's conservative parents, was the first Broadway musical with a gay relationship at its core. It was created by an entirely gay team of writers, Harvey Firestein and the late Jerry Herman, with gay director Arthur Lawrence on board as well. Lacage won multiple Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and its Act One finale, I Am What I Am, emerged as a gay anthem. Notably, one of the two leading men and many of the male ensemble roles were drag queens. We asked Paul Kanan, who played a Cajel in the 2004 revival, into the studio to discuss his Lacage experience. Here's Paul. In Lacage, the Cajels are fabulous performers who work at the cabaret bar that George and Alban slash Zaza, a gay couple living in the south of France, um, they own and run this club. They're kind of the glitz and glamour to this story that's strongly countered by this conservative religious family whose daughter is engaged to be married to George and Alban's son. And when all these characters come together, it's it shines this huge like magnifying glass um, that the audience gets to see really how important acceptance and loving all of our beautiful differences can be. The Cajels were definitely significant for queer representation in musical theater ensembles um, because the drag culture and community and history is such a significant part of the queer journey towards equality. The fact that Lacage was such a big hit was so important to drag being represented on this huge public level and gave visibility during um, such a crucial time during the AIDS crisis to this whole community. My performance in Lacage of Colloquio was definitely positively shaped by my identifying as a as a queer artist. But drag is something that I personally had never identified with as an expression of myself. I'd never done it before, so the makeup, the heels, the wigs were all very new to me. And of course it was fun, but I found I found something very powerful in playing that part. And I learned a lot about myself and how to face fears. But ultimately there's just something very strong and brave about a man in a dress on stage that I had I'd never experienced before. So it was very empowering for me. My favorite thing though about performing in Dragon Broadway was watching the audience go through the journey with us especially people you know are seeing drag for the first time ever. They watch, they question, they get on board, and they're rooting for us by the end. So just that way theater can change people's minds is incredible to watch. I think the story of Lacage is still very important for audiences to experience. I think it'll always be important because of its historical context in that it made such an important statement in a crucial time during queer history. 
the original won six Tony Awards. Our revival in 2004 won two Tony Awards, Best Choreography and Best Revival. And then the 2010 production received three Tony Awards. So it just kind of shows that acceptance and tolerance and fabulousness never really go out of style. Thanks, Paul. While Lacage was a major hit, no major queer musicals debuted on the main stem throughout the remainder of the decade. Why were the 1980s so slow for queer theater? AIDS. With many gay actors and creatives succumbing to AIDS-related illnesses and significant homophobia due to the epidemic, it sadly makes sense that we'd see a decline in queer-centered art around this time. However, As we enter the 1990s, it becomes clear that the theater community has chosen to channel some of their fight against AIDS into art. First came Falsettos, two one-act musicals and a trilogy developed throughout the 1980s by James Lapine and the openly gay William Finn. Falsettos follows Marvin, originated by Michael Rupert, a New Yorker who has left his wife for a boyfriend as he tries to create a new type of tight-knit family. Falsettos was the first Broadway musical to deal with AIDS. In the show, Marvin's neighbor, Dr. Charlotte, sees his mysterious illness start driving gay men to the hospital where she works. Later on, Marvin's boyfriend, Wizard, becomes sick and eventually dies from AIDS-related illnesses. This groundbreaking work also featured the first prominent lesbian couple in a Broadway musical, Dr. Charlotte and her girlfriend, Cordelia. Now, up until now, gay men, mostly white, have been the primary queer group represented on stage in mainstream works. Beginning with Charlotte and Cordelia and Falsettos, we finally get to see a little bit more diversity. Four years later, Rent burst onto the scene, changing the musical theater game forever and featuring many gay and lesbian characters and AIDS-related themes. Additionally, there's an explicitly bisexual character, a rarity in Broadway musicals, Maureen Johnson. Another character, Angel, made waves for queer representation— Often referred to as a drag queen, it's sometimes speculated that Angel may fall somewhere on the non-binary spectrum. There just wasn't as much language or conversation surrounding gender identity at the time, so it's hard to know for sure what was intended. Additionally, the ensemble featured many gay characters, most notably at a life support group that's members are coping with HIV-AIDS. Here's Tally Leung, who was the final actor to play Stephen Others during the show's original Broadway run to chat about Rent. Someone care. Will I wake tomorrow? We first meet Steve in Rent at the life support meeting, which happens in the middle of Act One. Uh, Mark is invited by Angel and Collins to attend the meeting, and Mark is actually shooting the meeting as well. And you find out that life support is actually a support group for people who are living with HIV and AIDS, or maybe who have friends who are living with HIV and AIDS and want to know how to best help their friends and their family cope. Steve, to me, represents, you know, one of the many people in the 90s who got the diagnosis for the plague and just didn't know, wanted to find others who were like him, wanted to play, wanted to find a place where he didn't feel so isolated by his diagnosis. We don't get very much backstory about Steve, but we do know that Jonathan Larson uh, based those people that we meet in life support, Allie, Pam, Sue, Steve, Gordon, 
based on people that um, he knew himself. Later on in the musical, Steve leads the entire company of Rent in, in a particular section of the show called Will I, um, which asks some very basic questions and, and Jonathan brilliantly writes it as a musical round. Um, the lyrics are, will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will I wake tomorrow from this nightmare? And I can imagine that as Steve is singing this at the life support meeting, you know, I want, I'm sure these are questions that people ask themselves all the time during this time, during the early 90s when this plague was ravaging people and taking friends and family away. But, you know, there weren't very many answers on how to cure it and how to deal with it. Um, I'm sure these were the questions that were, that, that were echoing in, in everybody's mind, especially as the plague continued to spread, but there wasn't any answers or anything as to how to cure it or how to best help those people you love who were suddenly stricken with this mysterious illness. In 2019, we have a very different relationship and a different knowledge of what being HIV positive means now. But, you know, in the early 90s, when rent took place, being diagnosed with AIDS was a death sentence and there was no cure. There still isn't a cure, but at least there are medicines that can keep people living with a high quality of life. That wasn't possible in the 90s. So these questions that Steve ends up having to answer, which I think uh, for himself uh, or ask for himself, will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will I wake tomorrow from this nightmare? These questions come at a time where you are probably in your young 20s and you are now facing the question of your mortality, something that I'm sure you know, none of us really expect to, be, to die young. None of us expect to die in our 20s. But all of a sudden, when something happens and life has dealt you a different set of cards, you start asking all of these questions that you probably were never forced to ask because you were just living your life in your young 20s and looking forward to decades more of life and love and, and memories. But now you have, you're faced with asking these all-important questions that, that are sort of, what, what is the meaning? Why are we here? What are we doing? And will I have left my mark? I'm not sure if it was ever the author's intention or the original production's intention to have Steve be uh, a representative of the queer community you know, uh, the original actor, Gilles, who played the role, is not gay. He's straight. He has a family. Um, but over the years, over the 13 years that Rent ran on Broadway, there have been so many actors that have assumed those roles. Actors of varying race and um, ethnicity and also sexual orientation. So uh, what I love about Rent and what I loved about being a member of that cast is that when we are put into the show, we are very much encouraged to bring ourselves and and our own unique uh, essence as as human beings to to the roles that we are playing. So you know, in no way was I asked to carbon copy the actors that came before me that were in my track of Steve and others. I you know I was very much asked to put my own individual take on it. And I think it's because a show like Rent, you know, it's it, there's really not much up there. There's no fancy set or flying helicopter or chandelier helping us tell the story. You know, Rent is tables, chairs, lights. It's an incredible story and. It's a company of actors that have to bring themselves to the work. That is all that is on stage, our hearts, our beings. And so um, because I got to play Steve and I am somebody who is queer identifying, I guess my version of Steve was queer identifying. I think any gay actor that got to portray the role, uh, in, that, that infused themselves in the role, there's no way that they, they cannot infuse um, their, own, their own queerness into a role. So 
for me, like it was important for me to, for my Steve to be authentic to me. And I am, I am a queer Asian person who grew up in New York city. And that was my version of Steve, but that is going to be very different than, you know, Giles's version of Steve, which was the original. And, you know, all the other actors that have played Steve before me, Robin de Jesus's Steve is very different. Aaron Tveit's Steve is very different. So it's, um, it's, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's represent, it's, I think it's more about representing yourself. And if you happen to identify as queer, then Steve, that night is queer. Now we're not given very much specific background information on Steve. So it was really up to me and my actor's imagination to fill in the rest. But the way I always envisioned Steve was he was somebody who had received the diagnosis, who probably watched other friends pass away and, um, probably does not have the support system outside of life support or the means to get the kind of treatment that he knows he's going to need. Um, and definitely in the early 90s, what was treatment? There was no cure. There, you know, there, there was AZT and that was it. Um, and, and that just delayed the inevitable. Uh, so I think these questions that Steve asks are questions that everybody asks at, at one point in their life when they're faced with their own mortality. Uh, and uh, you know, for it's. I think it's interesting to hear it, these questions. Who you know, people ask probably on their deathbed when they're, you know, older in age. But because of the AIDS crisis, it really, it 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 really obliterated a, a whole generation of young people. And I think it's powerful to hear somebody sing this that is that is in their mid twenties who is who is grappling with these questions, these questions of mortality that you you know, that no one should have to grapple in their young 20s with somebody who's, who supposedly has so much life ahead of them. Um, but all of a sudden, that when you receive a death sentence, you start having to ask these really tough questions. And I don't think Steve is comfortable asking them anywhere else but at life support. Thanks, Telly. As queer representation on Broadway increased, some creative teams decided to make changes to pre-existing shows to tackle their implicitly queer themes head-on. In the 1998 revival of Cabaret, Clifford Bradshaw's implied bisexuality became more explicit, and the ensemble feature of gay Kit Kat Club performer Bobby was expanded with new lines and a musical feature. This production ended with a chilling image of the MC in a concentration camp wearing the pink triangle, a badge worn by gay prisoners on his uniform. Both John Benjamin Hickey, who played Cliff, and Alan Cumming, who played the MC, were openly queer. At the top of the century, we saw fewer Broadway musicals with queer characters at the center of their stories, although mega-hit producers featured several supporting queer roles. A gay director, his partner, and a team of fellow creatives who keep it gay, played by the show's ensemblists. While the roles were mainly played for comedy, the openly gay Gary Beach made such an impression as director Roger Debris that he won a Tony Award for Best Featured Actor. 2003 was a more notable year for gay representation, with The Boy From Oz, the story of gay Australian singer Peter Allen, as well as Avenue Q featuring a humorous closeted gay puppet, and Taboo, which had gay characters and dealt with AIDS. 2005 brought The Color Purple, featuring two women of color exploring a relationship with each other. And 2007's Spring Awakening featured two supporting gay teen characters romantically intertwined with each other, one very comfortable with who he is and the other less sure of himself. While the chorus line's gay characters told stories about their younger selves, this is the first time we see actual queer youth portrayed in a Broadway musical. In 2011, Juggernaut the Book of Mormon featured Rory O'Malley as Elder McKinley, a Mormon missionary wrestling with faith and sexuality. 
While addressed in a comedic manner, it's certainly a very real struggle that many queer people go through, and a story we hadn't yet seen. That same year, Priscilla Queen of the Desert opened, telling the story of a gay drag queen who travels with a fellow drag queen and a transgender woman to perform an act at his ex-wife's business. In this production, as well as all major subsequent productions, Bernadette, the transgender character, has been played by a cisgender man in drag. How glorious it could have been for transgender audiences to see themselves represented more authentically on stage with some different casting choices, perhaps in the future. Fun Home, which premiered at the Public Theater in 2013 and soon made the leap to Broadway, is based on Alison Bechtel's graphic memoir of the same name. It follows Alison's discovery of her own sexual orientation and also addresses her relationship with her gay father. This was not only the first Broadway musical to have a major focus on lesbian identity, but it's also noticeable for having both a lesbian leading lady, Beth Malone, and a lesbian librettist, Lisa Crone. Once again, we see putting queer artists in control of a queer story lead to a deeper, more impactful piece of theater. In 2014, John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask's Hedvig and the Angry Inch, in which a genderqueer rock singer tells her story in concert, made its Broadway debut after originally premiering off-Broadway in the 90s. Creator John Cameron Mitchell has made it clear in interviews that Hedvig is about survival and reinvention and is not intended to be a, quote, trans fairy tale, end quote. That said, having this story on Broadway was a huge step forward for an underrepresented community, and I wonder how casting a genderqueer artist in the role would affect the audience's experience in future productions. 2013 brought us plenty of dragon kinky boots, 2014's If Then featured a rare explicitly bisexual character, and It Should Have Been You included comedic queer plot twists in 2015. The next few years primarily featured queer characters in supporting roles rather than center stage on The Great White Way. In 2018, Head Over Heels opened on Broadway, making Peppermint the first transgender woman to originate a role in a Broadway musical with her portrayal of Pythio, a non-binary oracle. This show also featured a lesbian romance between two other characters. While the show didn't run for very long or take a deep dive into any queer themes, its milestone in queer representation deserves much praise. Later the same season, The Prom arrived on Broadway, telling the story of Emma, a lesbian who has been banned from attending her high school prom with her girlfriend. A group of Broadway stars, including one gay actor, travel to Indiana to help Emma and gain some positive press along the way. Ending with an inclusive prom attended by several queer couples, the prom is a joyous celebration of love and acceptance. Just like that, we've reached 2019, the 50th anniversary of both the Stonewall Riots and the first queer character to appear in a Broadway musical. Wow. We got through a lot of information very quickly, and there is so much more that got cut in edits, guys. A lot of stuff to talk about. So, how are we doing when it comes to queer representation? The number of Broadway musicals telling queer stories has certainly increased significantly over the years, but there's still work to be done. It's clear that Broadway continues to favor stories about cisgender gay white men over all other queer stories, but there's definitely been an improvement in diversity recently. That said, the number of mainstream works about transgender and bisexual characters is terribly low. Nor are we seeing many shows about queer people of color. While I must praise Off-Broadway's A Strange Loop for its portrayal of an African-American gay man last summer, I'd love to see more pieces exploring what it means to be a queer person of color on the main stem. Now, you'll notice I haven't talked about ensembles very much in this episode, 
rare for the ensemblist, I know. Beyond the few shows that have explicitly queer ensemble features in the text, most of which are either from queer-focused shows or feature a queer character quickly for a cheap laugh, most creative teams are not working queer characters into the staging. Are we to believe that there were no queer couples in the entire kingdom at Cinderella, or none attending the Spring Fling and Mean Girls? While a few recent musicals have worked queer ensemble tracks into their staging, there's still a lot of room for increased inclusion. Additionally, I've discovered that there are far more straight-identifying artists playing queer characters than I had hoped, even today. Yes, there are plenty of talented straight actors and writers capable of telling these queer stories very well, and they do. I feel that giving opportunities for queer artists to take control of their own stories helps many queer audience members feel authentically represented on stage and leads to a richer theatrical experience. Take a look at the major queer-themed musicals that continue to be praised. La Caja Fall, A Chorus Line, Falsettos, Fun Home. They all have at least one queer writer on their teams. Most had queer actors originating their queer roles as well. Now, I don't think every queer character must be played by a queer actor, but the more the better. We'll chat more about that on later episodes. Stay tuned. Special thanks to Paul Kanan and Telly Leung for sharing their stories with us this week. The Ensemblist was produced today by me, Jackson Klein, and Mo Brady. We have a brand new way to support The Ensemblist. We've joined Patreon, where you can support the work we do here for as little as $5 a month. Check us out there at patreon.com slash The Ensemblist. The Ensemblist is so proud to be a part of the Broadway Podcast Network. If you can't get enough of theater conversations directed into your earbuds from us, there are more than 30 other great theater podcasts to listen to. Check all of them out at bpn.fm. Please help others find out about The Ensemblist by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also download episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at theensemblist.com. And be sure to follow The Ensemblist on Instagram to see the latest posts from our website where we share the stories of talented artists working in Broadway ensembles. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.